0: it's time again for another clip show. But this time, I think the writers, and honestly, Coco and myself, were needing a break, as the clips are all replays from episodes from the last three years. So, we'll do our usual, walking through the story, then throw back to our old episodes and the moments the girls are recalling. Come with us now as we stroll down memory lane in Golden Moments, Part Two. Thank you for the friendship we've come so far and traveled wide you're my best friends i could never lie
1: i love when we party dance and
0: sing and laugh just It's later that night, the night from last week, when during the day Sophia broke her big news, and Dorothy in her seafoam green nightgown and robe are in the kitchen, where Blanche comes in wearing her black and white matching robe and nightie. Neither of them can sleep. They're so distraught about Sophia's decision. Hoping to eat their way through their pain, Blanche reaches into the fridge to get a cheesecake. And even though one had been purchased just the day before, Blanche had to use it to recover from the emotional trauma of finding multiple gray hairs. Well, to clarify, she didn't eat the cake. She threw it out when she found gray hairs on it. Reading her friends' minds, Rose arrives with a fresh cheesecake in hand just in time. As they rapidly gather around the table, she shares the news that the baker who was the gray-haired culprit has since been fired. All of this has Dorothy delighting in the memory of how many times they've gathered around that table to solve their problems via snacks and cheesecakes. While Dorothy's question was rhetorical, Rose would like to know the literal answer of how many times they've done that. While they haven't had the Dorothy-proclaimed 147 cheesecakes, IMDb says that they ate just over 100 cakes throughout the series. Poor B, she actually hated the things. What Dorothy was saying was about how much she's enjoyed the talks the girls have shared. Like for Rose, when they always talk about sex. Well, Blanche takes offense to that. That's not all they do. They help each other, lift one another up, talk through difficult things in life, And then they talk about sex again. For this, we need to go back to job hunting, Blanche's curse, and the way they met. While we've been focused on Rose's work woes, let's not forget tomorrow is Dorothy's big date with the one and only Barry Glick. She's so excited because back in high school, Barry was who she wanted to lose her virginity to. But she didn't. Here comes the big O boys. No, not because of the scandalous sex talk that's about to happen, but because Dorothy again shares more about her and Stan and how they got together. She didn't hook up with Barry because Stan had entered the picture. She agreed to go with him to the drive-in because he claimed to be leaving for the Korean War. She jokes that her going on the date was her way of supporting the soldiers. But that is some plot whoopsie there because in a later episode, she'll talk about them getting together under different circumstances, much more unpleasant and sexual assaulty ones. Being the horrible lover Stan is, Dorothy didn't even realize she had had sex because it was over so quickly. Then, nine months later, she had her first baby. Rose waited until her wedding night to have sex. Not only was it her first experience with sex, it was her first time seeing a human penis. Blanche and Dorothy can't believe it. Blanche can't believe it because it's so unrelatable. Dorothy can't believe that she hadn't at least accidentally seen a family member like her father. Well, this question sends Rose into a tizzy of St. Olafian proportions. How the, what the, my, oh, my father. So when I was five, my family was hosting one of our only ever fully extended family Christmases which I'm not sure what my parents were thinking as we were in a one-bathroom house at the time, but okay. So we have all the aunts and uncles and cousins over. My dad's dad was out of the picture from when he was young, but my grandpa's twin brother was always around as the grandpa, and he was there too. And of course, he was the one I walked in on peeing. I don't think I was shocked at the penis so much as I was amazed that he was standing up and I couldn't really understand what he was doing. Coco, have you ever accidentally seen a family member's member?
1: Yes. Firstly, did you say how old you were when this
0: happened? I think I was about five. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. so that's why it was more like, how are you standing up?
1: Yeah, I I, I have a, a memory of being a little kid, maybe the same age, five or so, and uh, taking a shower. Maybe we were camping or something and having to take a shower in the same, like, you know, big shower thing as my dad and seeing his uh, his genitals then. Um, so that wasn't weird once when I was 13 or so, uh, I walked in our, our bathroom at my mom's house had two bathroom doors. So uh, on either, you know, and so I walked into one and then, then there's a big long mirror there and in the mirror, as I walk in, I can see into the mirror and my sister was sitting there doing her hair with a, you know, loud blow dryer and had a sweater on. And then nothing else. Oh, no. So she was double-ducking
0: like, while doing yes. her hair? Yes, and she
1: was like, you know, <sighs> and she like, you know, ran <laughs> towards slammed the door shut. But I was like, oh, I do have that image in my head. Oh,
0: lucky you. No, thanks. <laughs> so, I can understand Rose's reaction to that. Yeah. It's not something anyone wants. No. The ladies bring Rose down from the ledge, and she goes on to explain that the only things she had seen were from the animals on the farm. And Blanche is right. With humans having an average penis size of 5.16 inches when erect, being compared to a horse's 24 to 32 inch average is a tough act to follow. When recalling that first night, Rose continues to share how the whole commencing act took some time because the whole idea seemed so ridiculous. She just couldn't believe that that was what you were expected to do. I do think about that all the time, like. It is all such a silly, weird thing. Why does anyone care who does what to who? Dorothy nearly chokes on her pepperoni when hearing Rose explain how weird it all was. Trying to seek validation in her feelings, Rose looks to Blanche. Didn't you think it was laughable? I love Blanche in this scene so much. The way she kind of licks the inside of her lower lip while simultaneously being surprised and disgusted by Rose's point of view is pure magic. She not only didn't wait until her wedding night, She couldn't wait until her wedding night. She jokes that because she was in the South, the heat probably had something to do with her maturing faster. Well, buckle up for a fun fact. Research has shown she might be right. There are studies that have found that in climates with hotter weather, children may spend more time indoors being sedentary. That lack of movement equals a lack of melatonin. That hormone being lowered can cause puberty to begin prematurely. So I guess it's kind of a sad fun fact. Also being shown to cause early puberty, air pollutants, plastic pollution, and the milk on the table. Yeah, it's full of hormones, and they're causing it too. Wow, such fun facts.
1: One good thing about that is that our military will be made of large people.
0: (laughs) That's true. Big (laughs) bruisers with
1: big (laughs) pecs and big (laughs) Big thighs, big ol' fists.
0: This was always my Grammy Corrine's favorite scene. I'm not sure if it was just because it was so damn funny or because Blanche is channeling old Corrine, but either way, it's top-tier television. As Blanche reminisces about the first time she was intimate with a boy, she recalls every detail, from the tree she was under to the perfume she was wearing. I did always love the description. It sounded like something out of a Hallmark movie all setting the scene for her unforgettable life-changing moment with her first lover, Billy. No, Bobby, or was it Ben? The way she squawkingly laughs while disregarding whoever the bee he was, all that mattered was that Blanche enjoyed herself many, many times. Blanche isn't alone in that ability. In 2000 in a 2016 study, it was found that 8% of women enjoy themselves many, many times. The ability to many, many times for women can depend on their clitoral sensitivity and refractory period. Don't give up if you're going for many, many. 70% of women reported experiencing it at least once. So keep on trying with Brandon or Brian or Becky. Sadly, Rose and Dorothy fall in the same category as about 50 to 70% of women in heterosexual relationships that they are not satisfied. Another shocking number, approximately 12% of women have never had their eyes roll in the back of their heads. Ladies, gentlemen, non-binary friends, please love yourself. Spend some time with yourself. Get to know your golden girl. Bring electrical items you hide under your blanket into the picture. Grab a mirror. If you don't have to be in that category, don't be. If you don't know how to love yourself, how will you communicate with a lover how to love you? Can I get an amen? <laughs> Blanche is out of bed and at the kitchen table. While it's exciting for Dorothy to see she's up, Blanche shoots down the excitement, pointing out she's only up because she was eating in bed and she doesn't want to gain weight. The only thing keeping her going is waiting for Daniel Steele's newest book. Daniel Steele being the prolific romance writer who is actually, fun fact, the best-selling living author in the world.
1: Danielle Steele. Danielle Steele? Yeah. Well, I should start reading her immediately. <laughs> Did not know that. Isn't
0: that wild? I mean, she has a huge catalog. I'm sure she has ghostwriters at this point. And uh, they sell like hotcakes. Good for her.
1: You know, we were at that, that beach house this weekend. Tons of Daniel Steele. Oh, were there? At least 10 Daniel Steele names. Not novels. surprising. Yeah. Well,
0: they're beach reads, So perfect.
1: Horny beach read.
0: <laughs> the name's horny beach read. Sophia has been listening to Blanche's pity party and asks a clarifying question. Is this all because of the change? That phrase alone upsets Blanche. While Dorothy tries to remind her of all the positives, no cramps, no bleeding, no hunger, no moodiness, Sophia ends the list of things you won't have with a new addition that you will have, a beard. Because of hormone changes, some people going through menopause will experience a change in facial and body hair. So she isn't wrong. Although I'm pretty sure you just end up with some stray hairs on your chin. They have all come to the same conclusion. This living situation just isn't going to work. To prove it, Rose starts a St. Olaf story about the Great Herring War. There were two different families that controlled the herring-bearing waters of Norway, and they had different opinions as to what to do with the fish, to pickle or to circus. She's not kidding about the herring circus being smaller than SeaWorld. Herrings only grow to an average of 8 to 12 inches long. So not SeaWorld and not Flea Circus, somewhere fishy in the middle. A flea circus was an act created in the 1800s in Italy where small circus-like contraptions were built and using two methods, fleas or devices, they were made to look like a miniature circus was going on. Some vaudevillian types used magnets and gears to make things move and look like tiny fleas were jumping around, but they weren't actually. But there were many circuses that did use actual fleas you simply must YouTube it. Because fleas are so strong for their size, when a circus owner would pick through the fleas, he would find the biggest and jumpiest and tie a string or wire around them. Since they only live a few months, the circus was their life. I'm not sure if strings would be involved when it came to the herrings, though. Cracking herself up, Dorothy asks if there was ever a herring shot out of a cannon, a classic circus move. They did, but it was shot into a tree, scaring all the other fish into not wanting to do it. Although once the story was dissected even just a little, it was clear that Rose's grandfather, who told her about the Herring Circus, was maybe not the best source for family history. Something I loved about this moment, and Coco, you and I discussed it after watching, is that unlike so many sitcoms where something really, really funny either happens or is said and The whole crew of the cast just kind of move on with it, but we laugh at it. So often in Golden Girls, they recognize how funny a moment is, and they actually let the actors laugh through it, which I think led to moments like this where you kind of can't tell if it's a mix of acting or real laughter in that moment. Sitting around nearly in tears from laughing so much, the girls realize there might be enough humor and fun in their relationship that they could make it work. Deciding to push forward with living together, they get back to putting their groceries away. That's when Blanche spots the chocolate cheesecake Rose is trying to put into the freezer. That seals it. They're all going to get along just fine. <laughs> Halfway through the cheesecake, the girls still haven't figured out how to keep Sophia there. That's when Sophia, in her blue terry cloth robe, has come in and she's miffed. Talking to Phil on the phone, she's annoyed he's already getting comfortable with her cooking him dinner, but she's the one uprooting her life to help him. He should be making dinner for her, although the only thing on his less-than-refined menu is squirrel gumbo. When Dorothy points out that Sophia and Phil are fighting and she hasn't even moved there yet, Sophia once again defends her choice. How is the fighting Phil and I have any different than all the fights we have here, just like at the Caesars Palace venue, which doesn't host fights any longer as other larger, more high-tech venues have opened? RIP to Caesars Outdoor Fight Venue. For these stories, we get some rapid-fire clips from throughout the years. Lost in a fever, we aren't sure what day it is now, but Dorothy has taken over the couch and is resting with a blanket atop her. From the hallway, an unusually sluggish Blanche wearing a beige scarf and a fabulously bright-colored 70s print housecoat over her nightgown, and without a greeting, Blanche asks about her heating pad and if Dorothy has seen it. Heating pad? How should she know where her item is? Before I even get to that, I know you loved that outfit of Blanche's. I've never seen a
1: sick person look so great. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was flowy and dramatic. Mm-hmm. And it, it's really good because you could really accentuate how sick you are with your movements. Yes. You could dramatically she really, put a hand up.
0: Yeah. She's in so flat much, shoes. Yeah, it's, it's moving with you. She's, yeah, she's not in any of her heels and she just, and the arms are down and she's kind of like slapping her feet around. Yeah. It's.
1: It's a beautiful outfit. It's a great and it, outfit. And, yes, uh, a neck scarf.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you could easily, for her, take the scarf off, pull the robe a little tighter, have her stand up straight, and she's, like, ready to go out on a date. Oh, yeah. Because she's that fabulous.
1: Yeah. If, uh, if another house call doctor showed up and it was a, it was a man, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they would have, like, cut back to her and she would have had, the, just, like, the scarf around, around her waist as a belt. Oh, my
0: God. That would have been so funny. Yeah um we should write for the golden girl he he wasn't introduced yet but uh dr harry next door empty nest she has such a crush on him it would have been funny if if he had existed yet in that universe to have him come you know be like oh i'm just checking on you guys and be like and cut back to her and she's like perfectly put together (laughs) With a stern, raspy, southern drawl, Blanche reaches down to the end of the couch where a cord is hanging down. Picking it up, she asks, well, if this isn't it, I'd like to know what other electrical appliance you're using under that blanket. What a scandalous joke this is. Even as a kid, I wasn't sure exactly what I was laughing at, but I knew it felt naughty. Invented in the Victorian era, 1869 to be exact, the first vibrators came along. Because the doctors that were treating, a.k.a. manually stimulating women out of hysteria, well, their hands were getting tired. So very openly and only for medical purposes, the vibrator was created. The first ones had generators the size of refrigerators. So I'm guessing they maybe didn't hit the spot out of the gate. Before the 1920s, the vibrator was not even viewed as a sexual tool. That's because there wasn't penetration and it was being used as a medical treatment. So what changed in the 20s? Porn. A vibrator was used in an early pornographic film, forcing the public to stop pretending the vibrator was as publicly appropriate as a walker and redefined it as a sexual tool, therefore making it taboo and not to be discussed. By the 1970s, the vibrator was back and actually marketed as a sex toy. And get this, at that time, only 1% of the female population had ever used one. Another fun fact, when invented, the vibrator was only the fifth home appliance to have electricity, beating out, ha <laughs> the vacuum and iron. It wasn't until the infamous Sex in the City Sharper Image episode that vibrators became really mainstream again, and options became more available. In the 80s, though, it was the Hitachi magic wand, Samantha's weapon of choice, that was most widely used at the time. I'm sorry to have talked about vibrators for so long, but it was all really fascinating. It's in this scene we learn that Blanche made the vibrator jokes of the 80s so Samantha could reignite a passion for them in the 90s. The long and the short of it, yes, Blanche is implying that the cord she is holding is for her magic wand. God bless her. (laughs) Back at the house, Rose is entering the living room via the kitchen and has a serving tray with two cocktail glasses filled with green jello. While Rose is delighted to have it as a dessert, Sophia is not interested. Fruit doesn't hang in the air naturally, so it shouldn't be suspended in the air via jello. Coco, jello or gel no? You know, I'm generally
1: gel no. I like jello pudding.
0: Well, that's a brand. Oh. Jello brand pudding.
1: Oh, then gel no And
0: Jello is the gelatinous, shaky stuff. Hmm. Even as a kid, I would eat that, and but I <laughs> fun quirk. I would always swish it between my teeth. Me too. Shut up. Are you serious? I did too. Yeah, all the time. I see people just take a heap and spoonful, like mmm, gulp, and I'm like, are you are you trying to make me borf right now? Yeah, you got to chew it up. That's gotta- so thick. And I would, but I didn't like chomping it. Even as a kid, I didn't realize how much I didn't like eating animal stuff. Yeah, and I would swish it, and then I would have just kind of like, Jello juice.
1: Yeah, it was like a thick <laughs> Jelloy gravy.
0: That's so funny that you did that. I, did I it wonder all the time. how common that is.
1: I did that all the time with my grandma's Jello. She'd make green Jello, and I would squish it between my sugar-free <laughs> Jello.
0: Oh no, it was bad. I don't think I've ever even attempted of a, a fruit or an anything added to Jello. I think I thing. would like that
1: more. I didn't like that when I was a kid, but I think I would really like that now.
0: I, I would like that. it more
1: now. Yeah. I've some I've Put some grapes in there.
0: there also, some you Some stolen know what? grapes from the store.
1: Exactly. I don't, I don't support that. Do you steal grapes at the store? Do you eat sample things more than one? No. Yeah, okay, good. I don't um, think that's okay.
0: I'm not going to say I've never done that. Maybe like out of desperation, I'm at the Winco bin area, the bulk, and it's like, yeah, you know what? I'm about to buy all this, and I do want a cinnamon bear right now while I'm purchasing all these things. But never like... Multiple.
1: Never malicious. No. And I've
0: done that like five times in my life, maybe.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What, you? Are you a sampler?
1: No, I don't like I don't I don't I have a hard time believing that that I will get away with that. <laughs> <laughs> I get really, out of
0: our store.
1: I seriously don't think I've ever done it.
0: Wow. That's impressive.
1: Oh. Okay, perfect. Is it impressive or is it lame?
0: Yeah. Well. Now stuck with two servings of Jello, Rose, in her light aqua dress and yellow apron, sees Sophia making a bit of a mess on the sofa and inquires as to what she is doing. Well, it's Tuesday night, so of course she's cleaning out her purse. I also love that as Rose is asking, Sophia is a straight-up jerk and literally says, Beat it, I'm busy. Well, that's a New Yorker for ya. Coco, you had some Hawkeyes on this and you spotted... Purse banana. Purse banana. Purse
1: banana. What was that doing in there? Did she mention that before? Was she hiding it from Rose's fruit salad (laughs) disaster?
0: There are a few things I love about this show as much as I love the Sophia purse bit. No matter the time, day, location, or outfit, she has her beaded purse on her arm. And it is shockingly difficult to find a recreation of it anywhere. I would spend a pretty good chunk of change for a well-made version of her purse. So. Anybody out there? Any takers? Let me know. As the clown-carved purses is emptied out, strewn across the entire sofa, Rose can't believe all of those items, including a banana, came from that little purse. Sophia is of course sarcastic in her response, No, it's not on my purse. I cleaned out my ears and found a rain bonnet, a little plastic cap that has pretty much gone out of style. They were used to keep the fancy hairsprayed styles of the olden days intact so you could encounter rain but still have beautiful hair. She also had feniment in there. Feniment is simply a form of laxative, and it does not go in your ears. Sophia's constantly rude behavior doesn't go unnoticed by Rose. So she asks, what's wrong? Not in any better a mood after being asked, Sophia says, I haven't had sex in 15 years and it's starting to get on my nerves. And Sal has been gone longer than that, so we know that she's been hit in the scene since he's passed away. It's a new day and a potato sack adorned Dorothy with saggy boots that look like her flesh is melting has come in the door to ask Rose, who is pretty in pink at the piano in her fuchsia cardigan and periwinkle undershirt, if she was able to put music to the lyrics she had left for her. Well, she sure has, and Dorothy is loving it after only hearing a few notes. Ready to sing along to the tune, she asks Rose to take it from the top, which just means to start at the beginning. Or at least that's what I'm hoping, and she isn't referring to her own top, one that we're now seeing up close, one that has buttons going down, but not in the middle, just off to the left a little. Along with the button placement from the casual chic chef line, there's also an oversized collar that's been laid upon the partial zebra pattern triangle that decorates from the collar to almost her belly button. I know that explanation sounds bad, but trust me, the actual shirt is much worse. Feeling cheeky when Dorothy asks her to tickle the ivories, Rose literally tickles the piano. Tickling instruments isn't anything new. Phrases.org cites writings that featured lutes in the 1500s, violins and guitars in the 1700s, all getting their tickle on. Sad fact, it's because up until the 1970s, piano keys were made of ivory that the term applied to pianos. Luckily, there's a ban on the ivory trade, and while poaching still happens, pianos are no longer a large contributing factor. The phrase even inspired song titles, like the ditty you're hearing now, Tickling the Ivories, written by Wally Hartzer in 1913, performed by Joanne Castle. Tickling herself by Tickling the Ivories, Rose gets distracted from the work at hand. It takes Dorothy's stern request, followed by a death threat, to get her back on track. Singing the lyrics she wrote, Dorothy is confused when she sings Miami is nice, so I'll say it twice, followed by saying it two more times instead of the logical one more time. But Rose has a good point. For the music to work, she needed the third line of Miami being nice. But that's thrown off the meaning of the lyrics. Rose has a perfectly acceptable replacement. Instead of saying twice, say thrice, which, if you really think about it, could have worked. And heck, the use of thrice might have made it stand out this exchange has become one that the Golden Girls community is quite fond of. Who the hell says Thrice? It's simple. Anyone wanting to say three times but sound fancy. Also, anyone who is into rock music from the early 2000s, there's the band Thrice, who is still releasing music and have a song that could have been used in the Henny Penny play, The Sky is Falling. Fun fact, interuterine is not only part of the name of a Facebook group I've come to thoroughly enjoy, it's also any part within the uterus, a.k.a. the womb, fallopian tubes, cervix, and vagina. And no, it shouldn't be used in a song about Miami or anything else, really. Rose still gives it her best effort. <laughs> it's somber music when we return to the house to find Dorothy in the kitchen, seated at the table, and she's enjoying her favorite beverage, orange juice. Really, watch the orange juice intake on this show. It's constant, and it's very impressive. Rose walks past Dorothy, who now is wearing a similarly bright and patterned robe as Blanche had been wearing the day before, and she opens the fridge door. Realizing the juice isn't there, she asks Dorothy if there's any left. And one of the truly meanest things someone could do to someone I mean that as a level of disrespect, not comparing Dorothy's choices to, like, Hitler or something. She hears the question before she proceeds to pour the last of the juice, more than enough for Rose to have had some, into her own glass before responding with, nope, we're all out. If someone did that to me, I really don't know if I could ever speak to them again. Not because I'm petty or something, it's just so unfathomably disrespectful. Come on, Sophia, there's more to the relationships in the house than constant bickering. Right, there's also sex, which, to no surprise, has already been discussed. For every moment Dorothy tries to sell the love and fun they all have, Sophia pushes back. Yeah, and y'all are a pain in the butt. Sure, that might be true, Blanche concedes, but at least there's always something exciting going on. (laughs) The next scene, it's nighttime, and again, with the bad direction choices, we pan awkwardly across the room, making the show look like a 70s soap opera when we hear an unknown noise outside the front door. The noise gets closer and closer before the front door opens. The alarm goes off, and in the hallway, we see a shadowed figure. As soon as the alarm goes, so does a gunshot from that figure. The lights come on, and we see that the menacing sounds at the door we're coming from Blanche and her date, assumed to be the psychiatrist, Lester. Rose was the shadow figure, and her shot had luckily missed her friend and her friend's date, instead taking out the prized, adored Chinese vase. Rose makes the point that, hey, at least I shot the vase. The alternative was hitting your date. It's not comforting to Blanche, as she proclaims she wishes Rose had just shot Lester. Lester bounces, and Blanche calmly talks to Rose as if she hadn't just been an inch away from death mere seconds ago. Someday, I really hope to find a way to dismiss someone with, go on home, you old fool. I mean, the balls of doing that. My roomie just almost shot you. You're scared, but I'm calling you a fool. Sophia is glad because she hated that cumbersome vase. Before the girls can open up about their dirty talking techniques, Sophia arrives and is in the best golfing outfit in the house. Her yellow visor baseball cap combo goes great with her brighter yellow polo shirt under a bright blue cardigan paired with a khaki skirt. She looks youthful and playful. As the ladies pause their adult conversation because an even older adult has entered the room, Sophia gets next to Rose and turns to her before saying, There's a man in your bed. Rose stammers, panics, and lies. Blanche and Dorothy give a bit of an ooh and call her out for the noises they heard. Blanche then smirking with a Rose got lucky, which is so fun to hear her say because it seems like that's such an 80s raunchy high school comedy phrase. Getting lucky is just that, having sex, the luck of finding someone willing to do that nastiness with you. As the room swirls with giddy giggles and callings outs, Rose is hit with a brick of information from Sophia. Rose may have gotten lucky, but her date? Not so much. He's dead. Rose argues back. She just left that room. He's not dead. Sophia counters. She took some of Rose's laundry into the room, saw there was a man. Thinking nothing of it, she greeted him. But there was no response. He's just shy, Rose explains. Shy and dead and decomposing in a nearly 100-degree Miami day. Somebody call the police. Sophia's casual confidence about the whole situation makes it clear to the rest of the girls that something is definitely wrong with the man in Rose's room. She first claims to not want to wake him, to which Sophia says, you could light firecrackers in his nostrils, you aren't going to wake him. (laughs) On stage the next day, say 2.18 p.m., Dorothy is taking her stab at playing with Patrick. In her Beetlejuice meets Haunted Mansion uniform collared shirt, she embraces her dream man while giving us a mediocre southern accent. Rudely, Rose and Blanche are off to the side snickering at her performance and the line, you're the prettiest girl in the county. Even though it's just an audition, an actual kiss is involved in each performance. Next, it's Blanche's turn in one of the most iconic moments of the show, Wearing her red and blue flowered pattern combo with a stunning red undershirt, she first turns away when her name is called. Then with a dramatic fling of her jacket, her very large, very fake bosoms are revealed, earning a raucous response from the audience. With her tight bosoms that are definitely holding more than the average tire pressure of 33 pounds per square inch, Blanche swings her way across the stage into Patrick's arms. With him as her big spoon, Busty I mean Josie does better with her accent but the acting is terrible and I love when actors play bad actors well then when it comes time for the passionate kiss the pressure betwixt the two of them builds which makes her breasts explode and deflate not to worry her other set of boobs can handle a lot more roughhousing See, it just won't be the same without Sophia around. She simply has to do something. Oh wait, what was that thing she was doing? Oh right, she's leaving. So she's gonna go get packed. For Rose, it isn't the adventures of sex talk she'll miss the most. It'll be Sophia's advice, her life stories, and tall, colorful tales. Sophia and Rose commiserate in the kitchen about the friendship troubles within the house. Sophia's take is to stay out of it. Here we get our very first, picture it, Sicily, the opener to Sophia's famous stories. She then tells the story of how she and her friend, Mama Celeste, were driven apart by a man. When the doorbell rings, everyone is relieved the parents are finally there to get baby Emily. But they're wrong. It's adult Sophia who has come home from the walk. Patting her chest, she tells the tale of her walk. Half the walkers dropped out or perhaps dropped dead when the starter pistol went. Starting slow, she saved her energy before pouncing like a panther. That's when everyone started chanting her name, and I love how she says this. Sophia, Sophia. With the finish line in sight, she hit the wall. No, not the runner's wall, the wall of the new Wendy's being built on Collins Avenue. (laughs) Sophia is more old school about her home cures. Back home, you didn't go to a doctor, you went to the neighborhood widow, and she had a cure for whatever ailed you. Casually snacking on raisins, Sophia begins to tell the tale of how the miracle-working widow would make a medication for ear infections. But one day, the village idiot got his hands on it. Misunderstanding what he was to do with it, he put the green mixture on his pasta, not his ear. The thing was, it was actually delicious, so being that it was basically medicine on pasta, it didn't sell very well. The writers do such a good job here. You know there's a punchline coming, but you aren't quite sure if it'll be about the idiot, the widow, or if Sophia is just lying through her teeth. It turns out it was the latter. After saying that the village idiot changed the name of the salve to pesto sauce and it sold like hotcakes, Dorothy calls Sophia out for lying. I love so much that Sophia doesn't argue back or defend herself. She's just like, yeah, I'm old. I'm going to tell stories. Actually, the term she uses is colorful, which used to be used to describe any kind of outgoing, expressive person. Now it's actually listed in Psychology Today, and here's what they have to say about it. See if this matches a diagnosis for Sophia. Or me. The colorful personality is a subclinical form of histrionic personality disorder, which refers to a pattern of attention-seeking behaviors featuring exaggerated, even theatrical displays of emotion and shallow relationships. Here are some of the traits of a colorful person. High in most facets of openness to experience and are generally imaginative, emotionally expressive, artistic, inquisitive, and willing to try new things. Low in some facets of neuroticism, tending to be self-assured, not anxious or emotionally vulnerable, but also tending to act impulsively and to be quick to anger. Mixed in tendencies regarding agreeableness, they were very low in straightforwardness, modesty, and compliance, suggesting that they are manipulative, arrogant, and boastful, and have little respect for following rules. On the other hand, they can also be somewhat trusting, helpful, and kind-hearted, perhaps when it suits them. Finally, in regards to conscientiousness, they tend to be ambitious and sure of their abilities, but also tend to be disorderly and undisciplined. They do not plan ahead, and they tend to be lax about keeping their obligations. So I'd say a rate about a sixty-five percent on there. Uh, I'd
1: say (laughs) sixty-nine. (laughs) <laughs> As, uh, yeah, I heard some, I heard there were some things that were matchy a little bit, yeah.
0: I'm colorful, what can I say? Self-diagnosed, I mean, mental else? health condition.
1: I, I mean, I would call you colorful also.
0: Realizing there's nothing they can do, Blanche, Rose, and Dorothy sigh in defeat. They're already missing Sophia's presence. But Blanche can't give in all the way just yet, so she marches off to confront Sophia. Before she can, Sophia arrives, and with as much gusto as her I'm moving announcement from earlier in the day, she shares she's staying. Good night. Okay, now what are you talking about, Dorothy asks. Well, Sophia called, and Sally was shocked to find that Phil was as good as she could get. So she's gone back to him, and there's no need for Sophia to go. Although, she should maybe stop by and pay a visit to just, like, check in on this big family? After sharing how lost they would have been without her, Sophia agrees. Things are terrific at the house on Richmond Street. The moral of the last two weeks? Enjoy each other. Change can be hard and unexpected, but it's always made easier by remembering those cherished moments. Think about the good times, the bad times, and the cheesecake times. And then... You can talk about sex again. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week for a non-clip show episode with And Ma Makes Three. And Dorothy, in her seafoam green nightgown... (laughs) talking to Phil on the phone. She's annoyed he's already getting... getting. <coughs> What'd you say? <coughs> no, but <laughs> I thought you said something right before that. Okay. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.